good morning, church. I should give you the text, the book first, so you'll have time to find it. I want to speak on this hour from the book of Nahum. I help you. It's right after Micah and just before Habakkuk. I know that'll help you, right? I want to go there this morning. In the second service, Lord willing, I want to preach on the gospel as is seen in Genesis chapter 4. But this morning, this service, we're looking at the book of Nahum. Thank you so much for the invitation to come. And um, I was introduced recently as the last surviving member of the Over the Hill Gang. So that's who I am now, I suppose. Thank God for the privilege of being his child and for the honor of being called to be a preacher of the gospel. It's what I've been trying to do now for 66 plus years. And if I ever grow up, I want to be a cowboy. But until then, I want to keep preaching. Thank you, church, for your support of our ministries. Appreciate it so very much. The website is revivalcrusade.com. And if you just type in Matthews, two N's in Glen, one T in Matthews, you'll find us somewhere. Father, I'm so grateful for the privilege of being again here with the fine folks at Lewis Memorial. Thank you for their generosity to our work of revival and missions. I pray your continued blessings on this church. The times are different, changing, and it's amazing what changes we've noted in the last few years and only makes me wonder what it will be like in another 20, 25 years if you don't come. I pray that you bless this church, bless this service this morning, be glorified in what I say, what we hear, and what we do with what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two books in the Old Testament that end with a question mark. This is one of them. A small book, 57 verses. The book focuses on the punishment upon Nineveh. It focuses on the preservation of God's people. The other book that ends with a question mark is the book of Jonah. So Jonah and Nahum both end with a question mark. What a strange way to end a book. And both Jonah and Nahum 
deal with the same subject, the city of Nineveh. There are three verses in the first chapter that are positive in nature. They are uplifting. Every other verse in this book is a book is a verse of judgment. Only three verses could be said to be positive. The book of Jonah predates the book of Nahum by about 100 years. We first read of Nineveh in the 10th chapter of Genesis. Don't turn there. But that's before the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and the scattering of people across the earth and the confusion of languages so people scattered when they could understand the speech of another person. The difference in the two books is this. In the book of Jonah, Jonah calls for repentance. There is nothing in Nahum that even suggests repentance. It's a book of judgment. With the exception of those three verses in the first chapter, every verse is a book of judgment. You're familiar with a verse of scripture, may not be able to quote it all, but one part of the verse, Amos 4.12, prepare to meet thy God. That verse, Amos 4.12, is often used to tell people to get repentant, repent before judgment is coming. That's not the right interpretation of Amos 4.12. The right interpretation is the time for repentance is past. It's time for judgment. When we were kids, we would play hide and go seek. Somebody would be the seeker, and he would close his eyes, cover his eyes, count to a hundred. Everybody else would go hide, and when he reached 100, he would yell, ready or not, you shall be caught. The time of hiding is over. Now you're going to be discovered. That's the way Amos 4.12 is to be interpreted. The time for repentance is past. Now judgment is coming. That's the difference between Nahum and Jonah. The book of Jonah talks about Nineveh, one of the oldest cities in the world. It eventually became the head of the Assyrian Empire. The city of Nineveh sat on the banks of the Tigris River in what is now Iran, before called Persia. The city covered 60 miles long along that city, along the banks of the Tigris. The city was 10 miles wide. It was 
the largest city in the world. There's nobody who can tell when it, quote, rose to power. It did so, so gradually as the Egyptian empire diminished gradually, rotting from within, the Assyrian empire arose. It was by the time of Jonah, <coughs> the biggest city in the world. Hundreds of thousands of people. Jonah entered into the city a day's journey. That means that on the first of three days that it would require him walking 20 miles a day, three days required to go the 60 miles, the length of the city. The second day, his sermon was 39 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Most amazing thing happened. In Jonah chapter 3, the Bible says, again, you need not turn, the Bible said that the people of Nineveh believed God. That's different. Proclaimed a fast, for word came to the king, and the king unnamed said, decreed that it would be published throughout his kingdom let neither man nor beast drink, eat food, drink water, and let them turn from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and not do to us the evil that he said he would do? And the people repented. We call it the revival under Jonah. It was not a revival. These were pagan people. It is a evangelization, not revival, but evangelism. And Nineveh repented, and God spared the city. And Jonah, the only prophet in the Old Testament that by today's standards would have a successful ministry, didn't preach to Jews but to Gentiles, and he couldn't deal with success. The revival, quote, the evangelization of Nineveh was so great that it was another 100 years approximately before Nahum came and preached judgment. It's ironic. The name Nahum means comfort or comforter. The book is about the comforter who preached judgment. Even though there was that great evangelization of Nineveh by the time of Nahum, the city was again so wicked that God destroyed it. Another book, Zephaniah, was written about the same time as Nahum. No question in my mind but what they were brothers. They knew each other. This Nimrod built city. Actually, the grandson of Nimrod, 
and Nimrod was the first world ruler. Genesis 10, he, his son, his grandson, built the city of Nineveh. It was 612 B.C. when the next empire, Babylon, came in under King Nebuchadnezzar and destroyed the city. Interestingly, though the Assyrian Empire had existed for hundreds of years and was replaced by the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Empire only lasted about 80 years and it was replaced by the Medes and the Persians. This long-reigning city, you got to believe this, was so destroyed. Every building was torn down and everything was covered with dirt and stone. Nineveh so completely disappeared that there is no history of Nineveh until 1840 A.D., wiped off. And it was in 1840 that British archaeologists began to excavate in what was Nineveh. The destruction was that complete. I shall not take time to read a great deal of the verses. Nobody wants to hear verses on judgment. I begin in verse 1 of Nahum. The burden, whoops, most books of prophecy begin with, now the word of the Lord came unto, and then the name of the prophet, or the vision of, so forth. This book starts with the word burden. The same word starts the book of Habakkuk. It's a burden. It's an, a, a load, a grief on the, from the man Nahum. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Echoshite, the village of Echoshite, the village of Echo site, the location, is yet to be discovered and excavated in the land of Israel. But somewhere in his childhood or his youth, Nahum moved to the city of Nahum, Capernaum. The city Capernaum gets its name, village, caper, Nahum, this man. It's a burden. It's a judgment. The second verse, how about this? God is jealous. Have you ever heard a sermon on the jealousy of God? Our thought is, oh, jealousy is bad. Jealousy is evil. Jealousy is one of the seven deadly sins. 
there's a difference between jealousy of and jealousy for. God is jealous. We think God is love, God is holy, God is righteous, God is jealous. It's one of his attributes, his characteristics, his personality traits. We don't think of God as being jealous. Here's the difference. The sin is being jealous of. He's not jealous of. God is jealous for. And one of the two things that this book talks about is the preservation of his people, Israel. The other thing is the punishment of Nineveh. God is jealous not of, but God is jealous for. A a husband who is not jealous for his wife is not fit to be called a husband. A pastor who is not jealous for his congregation should not even be a pastor. You see the difference? God is not jealous of anything or anybody. God is the only creature in the whole universe, the only being, not created, but the only being in the universe that is totally complete within himself. You and I need an environment. We need air, we water, we need food. God is his own environment. He doesn't need any other. And he's not jealous of, but he's jealous for. The little book of Zephaniah talks about the jealousy of God, the justice, rightness, the righteousness of God, and the judgment of God. God is righteous in his jealousy. God is righteous in his righteousness and righteous in his judgment. Interestingly enough, the only other book other than the reference in Genesis about Nineveh, the only other reference to Nineveh in the Old Testament is one reference from the book of Zephaniah. So we have Jonah, Nahum, and Zephaniah all reference this city. I want to show you the first of the three positive verses, and it stands in direct juxtaposition opposite of verse 2. Got to look at verse 2. God is jealous for his people Israel. The Lord revengeth. You ever heard a sermon on God's vengeance? The Lord is furious. I've often thought I would like to see a chapter of the Bible. Now, kink a book. A book would be too big. But just take one chapter, and though it's black letters on white pages, if we could make it three-dimensional, and when somebody's yelling, those letters would stand up way high. He's yelling. God is jealous. He revengeth, is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversary, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. That's 
if you're saved, that makes you feel, praise the Lord. One day wrongs will be right, made right. If you're not saved, it ought to scare you. Judgment is ahead. One of the positive verses is verse 3. How different it sounds from verse 2. The Lord is slow to anger. Aren't you glad? I preached on the radio this morning on, from the book of James, and one of the things he says to the brethren is to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He got that from Jonah, from Nahum. God is slow to anger. Praise the Lord. He is great in power and will not at all acquit, excuse the wicked. And then the poetic language is so pretty. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and the storm, as in Hurricane Dorian. And listen to this. The clouds are the dust of his feet. Not literally, but figuratively poetic. Every child has laid on the grass and looked at the sky and watched the clouds form creatures, animals. That's beautiful. If the clouds, poetically speaking, are the dust of his feet. How beautiful must he be? The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, will not at all excuse the wicked. Verse 2 said, he revenges. He has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Goes right back to judgment. He rebuketh the sea. The mountains quake at him, verse 5. Who can stand before his indignation? Verse 6. Verse 7 is the second of those three words, or three verses that are positive. The Lord is good. That's the justice, the righteousness of God. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. I've been privileged to make a lot of trips to Israel. One place that's one of my favorite places that I've never seen anybody else who said, in Getty is my favorite place, but is one of mine. It's mentioned six times in the Bible, in Getty, and one of those is, means a stronghold. It's the, in Getty that David hid from Saul. It's in Getty that David could have killed Saul. It's in Getty where Solomon and the Shulamite woman 
were romantic together. It's such a wonderful place. And it said, it's a stronghold in the day of trouble. You ever had a day of trouble? We were talking this morning about great preacher who's now with the Lord, whose favorite song was just when I need him most. Jesus is near to comfort and cheer just when I need him most. I could bore you for the next 20 minutes about all of the physical maladies that I've experienced. I'm pretty good shape for the shape I'm in, but I have had all kinds of, well, 19 times I've had lithotripsies for kidney stones. That's enough. I could talk about Bell's palsy, viral encephalitis, three stents in my heart, three in my abdomen, on and on and on. I've told my wife on my tombstone put, he was aggravated to death. It's not... <laughs> It's not true. I do already have the tombstone prepared, and it will say, and passing through, he preached. That's from Acts 8 about Philip, the deacon. Passing through, he preached. That's what we'll say. It's already made, or really being made this week. If you've had any life at all, you know what it is to have a day of trouble. Man is made of woman in a few days and full of trouble. He is a stronghold. He is a refuge. He's just what I need him most. Bless his name. The Lord is good. It says that. He, he knoweth them that trust in him. Amen. It's not just do you know the Lord, it's does the Lord know you. Two little boys were talking, and as boys do, they start telling truth and then start stretching it. And one boy said, my daddy knows the chief of police. Another guy said, that's nothing my daddy knows the mayor. First boy replied, that's nothing my daddy knows the governor. Now they've stretched the truth. That's nothing my daddy knows the president. Thought he had him. First guy responded, that's nothing my daddy knows God. He thought he had won. But the other guy said, that ain't nothing God knows my daddy. Amen. The Lord knoweth them that are his. I don't have to get on my knees and say, Dear God, this is Glenn Matthews, second son of Ralph and Flora Matthews. God knows who I am. He knoweth them that trust in him. Have you ever tried to read the first eight chapters? I'm just enjoying myself this morning. It's, I don't, I just rambling, it's all right, I guess. I've reached the point where I don't have to impress anybody, I just enjoy myself. 
Have you ever tried to read the first eight chapters of First Chronicles? Every scripture verse is inspired, but not every verse is inspiring. I mean, it's just name after name after name after name. There was a man reading the Bible to his father who had lost his eyesight. And the old man would sit and the son, adult son, would read the scriptures. And he started reading First Chronicles, name after name after name. And he noticed that his father was shedding a tear. He said, why are you crying? And the father said, and God knows every one of them by name. Amen. The Lord knoweth them that trust in him. That's the second of three good verses. Let me show you the third. Again, from verse 7 on, it's just judgment, judgment, judgment. Oh, by the way, I have to point out verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, think they're safe, not disturbed, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he, the one who comes, that's Nebuchadnezzar, will pass through. And then God says, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. He is saying one of two things. He is saying to Nineveh, when I finish with you, I won't have to come back and afflict you again a second time because there won't be anything left, including you. Or he is saying to his own people, yes, I have afflicted you in your disobedience and your rebellion. I have chastised you, but the day is going to come when that won't happen again. Thank God. But anyhow, uh, I will, verse 13, I think it's Judah, Israel. Now will I break the yoke off you and be, burst thy bonds in this sunder, in a sunder. But look at verse 15. Behold, whenever you read behold, look at me please. Whenever you read behold, this way you respond. <gasps> It's wide-eyed, open mouth, catch your breath, amazement. Next time you read, behold. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Behold, now is the accepted time. Just think that. Wide-eyed, open mouth, catch your breath, amazement. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. <laughs> Upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. I've seen a lot of feet in my life. I've yet to see a pretty foot. Feet are not pretty. Mine aren't. They're ugly. <laughs> Feet aren't pretty. But he said, the mission, the ministry of the person 
who brings good tidings, that person who publishes peace, that person is so special that even his ugly feet are beautiful. You realize what that's saying? He's not talking about just somebody standing in a pulpit. Anybody, man, woman, boy, girl, anybody who knows the Savior and who's known of him because they trust in him, anybody, everybody who goes out bringing good tidings. It's the good news. It's the word of God, the go spell. It's God's spell. It's the word of God that anybody who goes out and publishes that, that person is so beautiful in God's eyes that even his ugly feet are beautiful. Think about that. There's so many things that amaze me about God. And I've known him for almost 73 years. And the one thing that just blows my mind is that God lets me serve him. Hallelujah. I get to publish glad tidings. I get to tell people about the good tidings, the gospel. Oh, I just read earlier, the clouds are the dust of his feet. And I said, if the clouds are the dust of his feet, how much beautiful must he be? And now I'm saying that the person who shares the good news of Christ is such a beautiful thing in the mind of God and in the eyes of God that even ugly feet are beautiful. I'm leading up, though you don't suspect it, I'm leading up to one question. I want to compare Nineveh with the United States of America. In 1819, Washington Irving published a little short story called Rip Van Winkle. You know the story. That's the guy who went to sleep and slept for 20 years. In the story, he was a Dutch settler, thus the Rip Van Winkle, Dutch name. But he went to sleep when King George was king in England. The guy slept through all of the Revolutionary War and all of the events leading up to it and after it. When he went to sleep, there was a George who was king. When he woke up, it was another George who was president. He had slept through all of that. I must tell you, there are times I feel like a Rip Van Ink Winkle. The world has changed so much. Your own church here is testimony to how we do worship has changed. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's different. 
And if it's made this many changes from the time David Living became pastor of a little church to now, suppose the Lord doesn't come for 25 years. What's it going to be like to, quote, do worship in 25 years? Now you see why, as an older man, I sometimes feel like Rip Van Winkle. Can we compare this country, not just the church, but the country, the culture, the mindset, the philosophy? Can we compare the mindset, the philosophy, the culture of America, United States, with Nineveh? I think so. The most difficult thing in the world to change is philosophy. You can change agendas, allegiance. You can change a lot of stuff. But it's the most difficult thing to change how people think. That's what philosophy is. And yet in my lifetime, I have seen the philosophy extant. I've seen the mindset, the culture, the morals, the country do a 180-degree turn from what it was. When I was a boy, the church door was never locked. Now you have to have security inside, outside the building. Times have changed. When I was a boy, there was only one copy one version of the Bible in English, that was the King James Version. Now we've got a plethora of them. When I was little, life was very simple, really. It's very complex now. I want to read to you, I don't want to ask you to turn, but I'll read one verse from Zephaniah, the other verses will come I'm not reading the verses. I'm just reading the word, the thought of the verse. The other verses will come from Jonah and Nahum. Listen to this. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh so completely destroyed. But it was a great city. Biggest city in the world. Extensive, covered 60 miles along the Tigris, 10 miles wide. It was rich. It was strong. It was a commercial center. It was vile. That's right out of the book of Nahum. It was wicked. It was idolatrous. It was full of joy and carelessness. That's the verse out of Zephaniah. Full of pleasure and carelessness. It was full of lies 
and robbery and witchcraft. Now I'm going to read them again. And I'm going to stop after each one and let you think. It was a great city. Ever heard of Make America Great Again? It was an extensive city from sea to shining sea. It was rich. The poorest person in America is rich compared to 90% of the population of the world. It was strong. The world's lone superpower. It was strong. It was a commercial center. A booming economy. It was vile, evil. If you kill every person in the state of Florida, then come north and kill every person in the state of Georgia. Come north and kill every person in South Carolina. Do the same to every person in North Carolina. Kill every person in Virginia. Kill every person in Delaware and over half of the population of Maryland, you have not yet equaled the number of babies that this country has legally murdered in the womb. Is that not vile? Wicked. Idolatrous. The person who will not worship the one true God will worship many gods, primarily himself. I read recently there are 4,200 different, quote, sects, S-E-C-T-S, religious denominations in the world. 4,200? And if you don't like them, start your own. That's how they got 4,200. full of pleasure and carelessness. You only go around once, do it with gusto, have it your way, pleasure. Lovers of pleasures, plural, more than lovers of God, full of joy and carelessness. You know what's wrong with this country? What? Ignorance and apathy. Don't you think so? Answer, I don't know and I don't care. That's this world. Full of pleasure, carelessness. Full of lies and robbery. We're reaching the point now where we have to investigate investigators who are investigating investigators. Diogenes needs a big lantern if he's looking for an honest person and witchcraft. Do you know the Bible said rebellion is 
as evil as witchcraft. It's frightening. What is said of Nineveh can be said of America. So are you depressed enough? Let me finish. I am one person. We have 328 million people in America. Had we not killed them all, we would have had over 400 million by now. I'm only one. Newsflash, I'm not responsible for America. Neither are you. I'm responsible for me. And so are you. The question, is America, United States of, and our Canadian friends get upset when we use, say, America meaning the U.S., because they're also American. Is the United States of America right now in a Jonah moment where repent, 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 or in a judgment moment, Nahum, ready or not, you shall be caught. Are we in a Jonah moment where there's time for repentance or a Nahum moment where the repentance time has passed and judgment is coming? You have an opinion? I have an opinion. Sort of like noses. Everybody has at least one. I'm not responsible for America. I'm responsible for me. I'm responsible for my family. I'm not responsible for America. I don't know whether this is a Jonah moment or a Nahum moment. I should hope it's a Nahum moment or a Jonah moment, not a Nahum. Our country, and I'm within two minutes of three minutes of finishing, our country has had two, quote, great awakenings. The first one, before we even had our independence from Britain, Jonathan Edwards era. By the way, supposedly the greatest, most effective sermon ever preached in the United States was his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was not an expository sermon, but a topical one, and the verse was taken totally out of context. It's interesting. I would hope this is a Jonah moment and repentance. You remember the story, Luke 15, the prodigal son, where the guy who was a son before he left home was the son while he was away and was the son when he came back. That's a Jewish boy. That's a picture of God's people, Israel. This guy went so low that he had to hire himself out to work for a Gentile and feed unkosher swine and wished he could eat not the kernel, but just the husk of the grain that the hogs ate. The Bible said, when he came to himself. When he came to himself? 
how many of my father's servants have hired hands, have food and enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say, number one, I've sinned against heaven in thy sight. He got that said. Number two, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. He got that said, but he didn't ever get to say the third one, make me as one of thy hired servants. He never got to say that. Sons don't become slaves. What brought him to himself? Two things. An empty stomach and an empty billfold. And it may be if there is to be a turning back to God in the United States, it will come when our stomachs and our billfolds are empty. When there is no place else to turn, maybe then we will turn to God. You're only responsible for yourself. The vast majority of you here are saved people. Publish good tidings. Publish tidings of peace. Stand, yes, stand for the Lord. Declare your faith. Defend your faith. Demonstrate your faith. Do something to publish good tidings. Only God knows if this is a Jonah moment or a Nahum moment.